Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we explore taxes in the U.S., including how tax policy has evolved and devolved over the course of U.S. history, what taxes are meant to be for, and how we can help the general public engage in important discussions and decisions involving tax policy. My guest is Annette Nellen, tax professor and director of the Graduate Tax Program at San Jose State University. Professor Nellen also writes a blog on tax policy called 21st Century Taxation, which you can find at 21stCenturyTaxation.com. Thank you so much for being here. So let's get down to it. They're talking about taxes again in Washington, D.C., and Congress is uh, just getting underway to start deliberating on some new tax ideas. And we just had a big tax overhaul a couple of years ago. So talk to me a little bit about what you know so far that you think would is salient for us. Certainly when people are campaigning for office, they have many ideas and tax ideas are Usually, I think every candidate has something they want to do about taxes, whether you know, making them more fair, whatever that means, raising them for the wealthy, raising them for corporations, um, a variety of things out there. And certainly, uh, President Biden and the Democrats did have things laid out in their platform and things that Biden was campaigning on, his build back better and wanted to get more funds into uh, hands of low moderate income families through a higher child tax credit, which does have some bipartisan support. Uh, and actually they put that in place for 2021 uh, with a, a, a bill that was enacted in March of this year. And there are some things with the tax plan put in place under the Trump administration that was all done by the Republicans, which some folks don't like. So yes, when there's a change in political party, we see, oh, well, we have some plans and we might even undo some of the items that you had done. But in history, we didn't see tax law change significantly each time a new party took over. So what's what's going on now? What's changed? It really has become, I think, more and more political every year. Prior to this 2017 reform, it was called the Taxes and Jobs Act that President Trump was overseeing along with um, like leading up to that House Republicans had laid out this blueprint before even the election cycle in 2016. They didn't even, I think, spend a lot of time saying, are we going to have any common ground that the Democrats and Republicans could work together? Republicans just said, we're going to do it on our own. There's a process in the Senate where we use budget reconciliations. We don't need 60 votes in the Senate. We just need 51. We've got that. We move on. We do a tax bill. In contrast, with the tax reform of 86, we had uh, Republican President Reagan. We had uh, Senate controlled by Republicans, but the House was controlled by Democrats. And they all came together. There were things they did want to work on. Uh, leading up to it, the Treasury Department wrote very extensive reports. In fact, these reports were written in 1984. I still have my students look at them for certain things because the analysis is just so deep so far as the data and the economic analysis, and some of it's still relevant because we're talking about these items still today because the numbers are outdated. Um, and then it was a whole months of hearings. So 
it wasn't like, oh, behind closed doors, we can get this done, you know, in six weeks and, you know, we'll just do it one party and, and uh, get this through. So that is unfortunate, I think, because you know, the tax law is there to serve everybody. It's there to raise revenue for the government. We have to make sure that the tax law ideally is not um, constraining business activity or, you know, uh, people doing well, the environment, you know, being healthy and, and all of that. So it is unfortunate that it's done so uh, partisan that we're just, who's all being helped by this? Yeah. So how do you think we got here? The public, their understanding of the tax law is really very low. This is a topic that's not covered in K-12 education. Uh, even in college, people aren't going to learn much about taxes unless they're an accounting major and they take probably just one required uh, tax course, but that's not getting into really the policy aspect of it. So it's very easy, unfortunately, for both parties to also have headlines um, that I don't know who's picking them up. I get I get them from both parties, from the tax folks, and I'm just appalled by what I see uh, just as a quick example, one that just came out this afternoon from the uh, Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee, top 10 reasons to oppose Democrats' Ways and Means Reconciliation Bill. And one of them is, number three, small businesses struggling to get back on their feet after COVID will get hammered with crippling tax hikes. And it says higher 39.6% income tax rate, which is where most small businesses pay taxes. That's just outright False. It's less than 1% of individuals would be in that top 39.6% bracket, which is going to come back automatically because the, the Trump uh, tax bill, the Texas and Jobs Act, has many items that after a few years turn into tax increases. Really? But I mean, it sounds as if that falsity is pretty much business as usual. I mean, it's what people are frustrated about but we don't really know how to deal with it. Obviously, if less than half of 1% of individuals are at the 39.6% bracket, how can they say that's where most small businesses are? I mean, if you walk into some restaurant and maybe they clear a million dollars a year and after all their expenses, unless they have a lot of income someplace else, then they're not 39.6% bracket, but that's what it says. And they know they can get away with it. And I'm just blaming the Republicans. Democrats will also say things that just either... We're missing a little point or we're, you know, thinking maybe not going to read the whole thing or maybe the fine print. There's some little clarification there, but none of that really helps anybody. That's true. In fact, it hurts us. Then they talk about, oh, and we got tax breaks for the wealthy. That's what the Democrats want to want to do. And they mention a small item and they are right. Uh, there's no reason to be giving energy credits to people who are going to buy expensive electric cars that should just go away. I don't remember now if it's Republicans or the Democrats or both of them put them in place in the first place. But that's just masking the fact that the Democrats left out a very large uh, tax increase for the very super wealthy that Biden had talked about. And many have talked about it. It's an incredible tax error, I would say, in our tax system. Biden has in his plans addressing some of the concerns people have, but for whatever reason, the House Democrats in the House Ways and Means did not include it in their bill. And that provision is that at date of death, if you have gain in your assets, it's income tax-free. So for example, think about these very wealthy founders of large companies, uh, Bezos, Zuckerberg. Uh, they have even founder stock. 
They've gotten stock through stock options. All of this is appreciated in value. If they were to die today, there'd be billions of dollars of gain in there that would never be subject to income tax. Why would they get that break versus if, we have, if we're willing to give billions of dollars of, of break, why can't it be to police officers or firefighters or doctors, nurses, teachers or, or something? Um, but for some reason, that's missing. But when you hear a statement like, oh, the Democrats want to give these tax breaks to the wealthy, and they mentioned a small one, which only going to apply if they go out and buy expensive the right kind of car, and it's a small, relatively small dollar amount compared to the billions of taxes that would be saved. And, and these provisions is what also has helped build this incredible wealth, particularly we're talking about uh, dynasty wealth where, you know, the Rockefellers, the Disneys and all that, that have this wealth that they you know just keep on passing along generation to generation that helped along by our tax law. Tax law helps them to get get wealthy. And they're just pointing out one minor thing, which I, I hope does get fixed, but it's just a minor thing. So it's kind of masking, hey, whew, they left off the one we didn't want to have in there anyway. That's going to really, you know, hurt these ultra, ultra wealthy people. Okay. So what can we do when most of us don't know the questions to ask, or we don't know how to hold lawmakers accountable exactly when it comes to taxes? And in a lot of ways, I don't think people know that these provisions even exist in the tax code. A lot of good things happen that make the system really better when there's such a low understanding among the public. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. It's complicated. And we, you know, want to make sure you can do the quadratic formula. And we want you to know there's three branches of government, but we're not going to tell you how taxes work, what's the policy and theory behind them, what should they be doing. And how could you as a voter be a more effective advocate for asking better questions of candidates or writing to your elected officials to say, what the, what the world are you doing this for? This is doesn't make any sense. Right. I just want to clarify. So the provision that would tax wealth is not there. So that wealth is still untouchable. Right. So far as the gain that they have at date of death. Yes, the gains. The House uh, Democrats and the House Ways and Means did put in some additional measures that have been used over time to build up some wealth. I mean, one that's really gotten a fair amount of press lately is um, Silicon Valley uh, company founder and has $5 billion sitting in his IRA account. That's just crazy. So they, they're addressing this ultra account so it won't happen again, at least at that, that degree. And that makes sense. And it's something that just wasn't intended to be. You've got $5 billion in your retirement account with, you know, tax, um, some tax savings along with that. Uh, but the, when we talk about wealth, something else that has been in the news for the last couple of years, uh, not that it's brand new, but gotten a fair amount of attention, particularly from Senator uh, Senators Sanders and Warren, who had these in their tax proposals when they were campaigning, is actual wealth tax, where it's saying if your wealth is above you know, $50 million, they had different thresholds, uh, you're going to measure that wealth and pay you know like 2% on it. It was only affecting about I, th I think under 150,000 individuals. We kind of forget that there are these billionaires. I know when it was um, being talked about in New York, I think the governor had made a comment about, well, yeah, we have at least 100 billionaires living in New York. Wow. <laughs> many, many, many years ago, we had um, at a conference on tax policy, the mayor of Palo Alto was on a panel and talking about a city. He says, oh, there's five billionaires that live here. That was, that was like probably 15 years ago, but I'm like, Wow. Yeah. And now it's a hundred in New York. It's like, yeah. It was going to be you know, taxing wealth and like one defined wealth is a, a more than 30 million. One's more than half a million. There's a very interesting testimony. There was a hearing 
uh, in the, I believe it was the house, one of the people testifying at, I think she actually testified twice, is Abigail Disney. Now she's the granddaughter of Roy Disney. She also had a very interesting article in the Atlantic about how they preserve dynasty wealth. <laughs> um, but she was apparently in favor of having this wealth tax saying, and she made these comments about, well, you know, the tax on this wealth is going to be 2%. If you have $50 million, you can't make more than 2% from it. You should be paying this tax. And then the one that was going to be over a billion just says, if you can't live on $999 million, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> Craziness. Yes, crazy. And it's this, I want more, even though I have so much. And then from the side of the general public, they've shown that there's this disconnect between what the general public thinks is the disparity between people making, you know, the vast majority of people and what they make and these um, people making so much money that the public doesn't really have an understanding of how wide that gap is. Right, right. And, and certainly among the very wealthy, um, I, I don't know all of their finances, but certainly sure. we know that many of these wealthy people have done many wonderful things with their money, sure. like the Ford Foundation, uh, look at what the, you know, the Gates Foundation has done to eradicate certain diseases and bring attention to many issues. Um, I don't know what percent of their total wealth had, had gone into that. Um, but it, of course, sometimes these wealthy folks also support. Yeah, we, we're not paying enough. I mean, Warren Buffett has said that uh, many times. And as to what you know, the answer is, um, it's probably multifaceted. Certainly, I would suggest that to the extent the tax law has been helping to build that wealth, that's not really what the tax laws is supposed to be doing. It should be fair. If you have this gain, you should pay tax on it. The law shouldn't be encouraging you right. to have a right. tax favored retirement account beyond what you would actually uh, need in your retirement. Now, the needs vary, but it's hard to imagine you need $5 million in your retirement because people live on far less <laughs> than that. Right. And then right. You know, also when you talk about these uh, dollar amounts, it can easily get distorted in looking at data because sometimes you'll say, well, here's what taxes are paid and the like, we'll break it down by quintiles of income. That's not good enough. Um, they should really be looking at smaller segments, particularly at the bottom and at, at the top. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking about tax policy in the U.S. with tax policy expert Annette Nellen. At the top, I pulled out this uh, joint committee report that was done earlier this year. The report's called uh, Present Law and Background on the Taxation of High-Income and High-Wealth Individuals, released by the Joint Committee for a hearing in Congress, roughly on that topic, on uh, May 10th. And they have a fair amount of data, because they got access to a lot of data. One table about the distribution of pre-tax after-transfer national income accounts, where they're showing the bottom 50%, and their average per capita income is roughly 27,000. If you look at the income group 50 to the 90th percentile, average 71,000. Then you get to the 90 to the 95th, it's 134,000. When you get to the bottom half of the top 1%, it's 294,000. When you get to the top 0 0.01, it's 14,259,000. So in that top 1%, You've got folks ranging from roughly 300,000 of income up to multi hundreds of millions of dollars. If you don't really get that broken down, and you are seeing a little bit more of that happening of breaking down that top 1%, because if you instead lump them all into the top uh, 
then looks like, oh yeah, everything's fine. We've got this progressive structure and this and that, but there are many provisions, uh, some of which have a little bit of cutback in the uh, House Ways and Means Bill, uh, but that just would be benefit, I think, if there was a, a discussion, kind of like what was happening back with the 86 Act. Let's have the whole committee come together with an active discussion. Let's have a policy paper, if anybody wants to read this, where economists and the attorneys, the accountants have come together and put this together, it's a lot of analysis and data, and have a discussion. What should it look like so far as we want to have a tax system that brings in sufficient revenue, which means you should also first have a discussion. How much money do we need? What's the appropriate spending we'd like to see? And then how can we bring in this, uh, this money in a way that's going to not hold back the economy, not going to you know cause people to you know not be able to I can't work send my kid to college anymore or you know I got to have a third job or you know whatever that might be to really have that discussion, including how is the world changing and is our tax law of yesterday what should it look like today and not just you know the rules of how you calculate your you know, the formula to calculate your amount owed, but the technology and how we do it. We're still running a tax system, which has remnants of the 19th century in it. It's not the same way you order something from Amazon or do your online banking. It's It's got some technology, but it's not near what it could be. And where's the discussion of that? Right. Which, yeah. So we're, there are a lot of discussions we need to have that we are not having. I quickly want to talk about that breakdown of the 1% because the top 1% starts at 300,000. Then I think there are some people out there who are aspirational enough to be like, you know, maybe if I work hard or maybe my kids can get there. And therefore they have some sort of stake in imagining they'd be affected by it or we'd be affected by it. So that's where I take your point about the disservice we do by not disaggregating that, right? Because 300,000 up to a billion, you know, is like that's a huge range in that tiny 1%. And that is something that I don't think we have a good understanding of. And that continues to grow. You do hear some stories about, you know, this growing income gap. And and, and it's really at that top uh, 1%, and, and maybe the top 5%, because, you know, still people growing amount, maybe above 250 that might be doing well. And now I know people will say, Oh, but you know, look like you know these like Jeff Bezos. Look what he's done for the economy. That that's great. Um, I don't know. There's two so, sides to that. Yeah, <laughs> I think I would think with all that, you know, couldn't you somehow spread the wealth? They have so much wealth. Uh, like you could set up like a whole university and you know train tech people that really serve your needs that you that you're looking for. Um, you could set up yeah. think tanks and you know help help the world to move along. You bring up an excellent point. Is taxing taxes aren't supposed to be a punishment. Taxes are well, that's my question to you is what are taxes for? Because they're supposed to help us function as a society, right? And so I, I feel like we have this mentality throughout our culture. And I believe it started with our founding, you know, the Boston no taxation without representation. Yeah. You know, throw the tea in the so uh, what are taxes supposed to be for? Well, famous quotes even engraved on the uh, entrance of the IRS building at uh, 1111 Constitution Avenue in D.C., uh, stated by uh, Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes many years ago, taxes are what we pay for civilized society, right? We want roads to drive on. We want to have a you know, way that we can communicate, have letters sent, um, safety. We want a good defense. We want uh, schools for our um our, our children. That's, that's what 
uh, the taxes are for. They're to fund government operations. And it's probably, we do need to have another discussion about what all do we want those operations uh, to be. Raises lots of issues. Actually, I was just thinking another hearing that occurred earlier this year was a concern. We've heard this for, for years of some large companies that pay you know minimum wage and some of these employees, even full time, are claiming government benefits because their pay is so low. Um, so that got a discussion about: do you should we raise the minimum wage, or should these companies just uh, be paying more? You know, what should be your fair share if you've got full time workers where some of those are claiming government benefits? Then arguably, you might say, well, then the company is actually getting those benefits, so maybe they should instead be paying those, you know, in, in taxes. So I mean. It's, you also got this kind of a cycle going on and what is the appropriate amount to be paying, but we should be looking at what do we need to run? How should some of that be funded? Maybe some of it should be funded by, you know, employers. If you want to have employees, uh, maybe you should be providing them a certain amount of uh, health coverage or whatever, but not, I'm not necessarily subscribing to that. I think we also are looking at what's the most effective way to provide this. Well, what do you think is the most effective way to do that? Is is tax law the right place to try to solve these issues? Are we going about it the wrong way? I mean, it feels like we are. It seems like employer-based health insurance hasn't really been working for everyone. It makes people afraid to leave their jobs. There are so many out-of-pocket costs, people going into debt over medical bills. Our tax law has really caused distortions in the health insurance market because we've had this long-standing system that if the employer subsidizes the employee's health insurance, that's tax-free to the employee and deductible by the employer. And that's why when you go to the doctor, the first question they ask is, well, do you have insurance? Yeah, they're never going to tell you what the price of anything is because the insurance is just going to cover it and they're going to bill our employer who will just you know keep on paying it. Might cause them to be able to have to hire fewer people uh, because of the growing health insurance costs. But is that the effective way to do it? Only, I think, about 60, 65% of employees have that coverage for folks who have to pay for it out of their pocket uh, without as much tax subsidy. What's the point of that? This costs uh, the government through what's called a tax expenditure. The fact that we get this you know, employees with the subsidy from the employer get it tax free. If that instead was taxable, they'd be bringing in roughly another $220 billion a year. So it's roughly the government spending that. Where's the discussion about, gee, can't we take that and spread it out more equitably among all individuals? Would be better off if all individuals had, you know, some, you know, confidence of, of their health coverage. I know the Affordable Care Act tried to help some of that. It hasn't solved every <laughs> issue there. And actually, one, one slight improvement made this March of making this premium tax credit available to more uh, individuals. But where's the discussion of we're not using our dollars well. In fact, actually, leading up to the 2016 election, the House Republicans had a few what they call blueprints. One was on tax reform. One was on health care reform. And they noted that, yeah, we have this tax expenditure, $224 billion a year. Maybe we should look at that to see if that could be done more effectively. But that never, uh, never happened. Everything gets very complicated. Uh, and time, I guess, is short to... To, to deal with these issues. And again, the public not seeing the, the big picture. I want to ask about the will to do something and the public's role in a moment. But first, I just want to clarify what a tax expenditure is. In our tax law, we have over 100, in our income tax law, over 100 of these tax expenditures. And they go, well, what's a tax expenditure? 
It was a term coined decades ago by Assistant Secretary of, of Tax Policy, where some of the lawmakers they were trying to do some reforms. Says, you know, don't just look at the budget of these agencies to figure out what the spending is. You've got spending in the tax law. Uh, you know, just a simple example. The university, you know, some students might be getting a Pell Grant, which we can think, oh, that's, you know, money that the Department of Education has to ask for every year and students apply and the money goes right to the university. But we also have in our tax law, an American Opportunity Tax Credit, where most students or their families will claim that where they get a $2,500 credit. So it's handing you $2,500 per year for four years, so a total of $10,000. That is not in the Department of Education budget. So you'll see, oh, look at what we're spending on Pell Grants. No one is, unless they look at the tax expenditure report, are gonna say, well, look what we spend on the American Opportunity Tax Credit. Some of that's going to um, families where they wouldn't qualify for a needs-based scholarship, their income is too high, but that's in there. And it's this, say, buried spending. I say buried, even though there's three government agencies at least that issue reports annually, all the states publish tax expenditure reports. I think lawmakers look at them, some policy folks, but I've run across folks that, you know, oh yeah, I'm an economist studying, you know, spending. And I'll say, well, do you look at the tax expenditure report? What? I'm like, in fact, at the federal level, the spending in the tax law, recently measured by the Congress, uh, Congressional Budget Office, it says about 1.8 uh, trillion a year, where discretionary spending is now about 1.3 trillion. So there's more spending in the tax law that really needs to be analyzed. Ideally, you would publish what we would call the unified report. So you'd say, okay, we'll take the cost of the tax expenditures, we add them to the revenue that the government comes in, then we pull them out as the deductions. In, in the categories, you can see it compared to the direct spending and the tax expenditure. For example, the mortgage interest deduction is a tax expenditure. And we actually, maybe not now because the, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act actually caused fewer people to itemize their deduction. So the expenditure really dropped. Um, but for a long time, that was certainly higher than what the federal government spent on low-income housing. So to summarize, so a tax expenditure is basically where the government gives a deduction to the public. Yeah, deduction or exclusion or tax credit. So that means that the public benefits in some way, but the government is then not seeing that revenue or needing to expend uh, money. Right. So if instead of um, the American Opportunity Tax Credit, they could have instead, it would have been a different committee because these tax expenditures are done by the tax committees in the House and the Senate, where it's not the same as the Education Committee figuring out how much should we help people go to college. So it all should be looked at in the whole context of the discussion about uh, that Biden and others had campaigned on, let's just cancel the student, student loans. It needs a bigger discussion about what all does that mean? And if there's a problem with the student loans, if we just cancel the debt, but keep the problem that allowed this to come up, but we got to fix the problem first. It sounds as if there's never really been a comprehensive, holistic look at the U.S. tax code. And that's led to piecemeal provisions that sounds like contradict or maybe counterproductive. We have a lot of odd things. You know, something else that's kind of odd when we put something like this mortgage subsidy into the tax law. Um and a lot of people get offended when I call it a mortgage subsidy. And I said, well, what's the difference between, you know, if the government just wrote you a check to help pay for your mortgage, both you and the government in the same situation afterwards, or Pell Grant versus American Opportunity Tax Credit, 
And of course, the government, of course, is all of us. Right. Right. All right. We are. the. That's another bit. We are the government. We it's it's us. It's our. Yeah. Which we lose sight of, I think. Right. Right. So on some of these, like the mortgage subsidy. OK, great. The government's going to help subsidize your mortgage. Well, I know folks and it's not just the federal level, but state and local uh, might get benefit for maybe some housing subsidies. And I don't don't know for sure, but I think on some of these, it's like, oh, hey, you got a felony arrest. You didn't pass a drug test. You've lost it. We don't have that for the mortgage interest deduction. You could have a DUI and still get your mortgage interest deduction. So that's, there's also difference, many differences in how these really operate. But nobody's really asking or <laughs> few people are asking, why can't, can't we fix this and make it all look a lot better? Thank you to my guest, Annette Nellen, tax professor and director of the Graduate Tax Program at San Jose State University. Professor Nellen also writes a blog about tax policy, which you can find at 21stCenturyTaxation.com. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.